Welcome to Inside the Chamber. I'm Nikki Anderson, the President and CEO of the Naperville Area Chamber of Commerce. Today, our show will focus on the opioid crisis and how it affects business. Inside the Chamber is brought to you by presenting sponsor, Naperville Bank and Trust. of economic advisors, the opioid drug problem has reached crisis levels in the United States. In 2015, over 33,000 Americans died of a drug overdose involving opioids. CEA estimates that in 2015, the economic cost of the opioid crisis was $504 billion, or 2.8% of the GDP that year. This is over six times larger than the most recently estimated economic cost of the epidemic. So we're going to learn more from our experts, and I'm really pleased to have all of you here today. Thank you so much for your time. You. How I'd like to start off is having you just share what you're working on, what type of initiatives are out there, because I think then that from there will stem a lot of really important educational conversation. So, Lieutenant Governor, can I start with you? Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me. I think we all realize that the opioid epidemic knows no neighborhood, no color, no class. It is, uh, it, it, it devastates us all in all of our communities. I always call it the equal opportunity aggressor. I became involved uh, with the opioid epidemic a little bit over a year ago. Uh, I knew about it, but uh, the governor called upon me to co-chair the task force on opioid overdose prevention. So over the last two years, uh, we've been looking at what other states have been doing, uh, finding out what works, what hasn't been working. And then in September of last year, the governor unveiled alongside us and co-chair Dr. Nirav Shah our plan as well as our task force. And I'm glad to say that over the course of these few months, we've been able to move the needle significantly. And what I like to tell people is that we've uh, hit the ground running on this. We realize how important this is and how devastating this is to many families. Mm -hmm. So we now have a 1-800 number. And a lot of families don't know where to go. And that's the first place that they could go. It's totally anonymous, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-833 to find help. We also know that Narcan is uh, the resuscitator. We now have a standing order where you could get it at your local Walgreens or at your local CVS. That's significant too because we could be first responders now to our neighbors mm -hmm. and within our household. And now we have the prescription monitoring program that is mandatory, which is a big deal. So every day we significantly move the needle so we could actually say that this epidemic in our lifetime is a thing of our past. Great. Wonderful. Matt. Yeah, uh, at Rosecrans, a lot of our initiatives are more treatment-based. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, at our 95-bed adult facility out in Rockford, we have a, a separate 11-bed opiate-specific unit okay. where we spe tr treat specifically clients that have um, 
issue with prescription opioid uh, medication use or heroin use. Um, so we have dedicated programming there, um, in, which, in which case we're able to dus discuss medication-assisted treatment um, as well as grief and loss because anybody that's dealing with this issue is surrounded, unfortunately, by grief and loss. So we're really able to tailor our treatment in that facility toward the specific issues that come along with that substance use disorder. Uh, we also have recovery homes for adults because a lot of time with this, is this mm -hmm. issue, even if they do a 30-day residential program, they oftentimes need more support sober living uh, because it can be difficult to turn the tide on this mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're just kind of going back to your uh, living environment. So we have recovery homes uh, in Chicago. We have a 30-bed uh, adult recovery home in the Lakeview neighborhood as well as in uh, up in McHenry County and out in Rockford where people can stay for uh, three months up to a year and a half and really have that structured support that really the outcomes with this type of disorder really go way up when you have that cocoon of support and the drug testing and the support groups and the case management and all of that support really goes a long way. Um, so that's really kind of how we're tailoring a lot of our interventions toward this, this opioid issue. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Karen. As a county, DuPage County has really aligned our efforts using a public health lens to attack this issue. I think it's really important to remember that more deaths occurred from opioid overdose last year than HIV deaths at its heyday, than motor vehicle accidents when prior to the National Highway Safety um, Council became involved. So this epidemic that we're facing has really eclipsed anything that we've seen before. So in addition to some of the um, activities that have already been mentioned, um, the DuPage County County Board Office actually um, requested that the Health Department pull together a cross-sectoral group of community leaders and we've we've done that with our HOPE task force and through our HOPE task force we've identified that not only do we need to continue our prevention and our education and we need to uh, make sure that people don't gain access to these um, very, very harmful narcotics. Um, but we've also identified that we need to really expand and identify ways that we can intervene earlier in the, in the disease process and link people successfully into treatment that they need. Great. So um, as a Chamber of Commerce, I would be remiss if, if the topic of this is how does the opioid crisis really affect business? Um, I, I have heard, and maybe you, you all can help me with this, that big businesses have some great things in place, whether it's an EAP program or um, um, drug testing or family support programs. But I work with a lot of small businesses. So is there anything in place for small businesses, or where do we see um, assistance for businesses that might not have the budget of, of a large business? How might we be able to fit in there? So I think it's really important to remember that estimates are that 75% of people with a substance use disorder are actually in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we think about people having a substance use disorder and they're completely not able to function or hold a job, when in fact data tells us otherwise, that three out of four individuals are in the workforce. And so small businesses, just like big, big businesses, and kind of to the, to the lieutenant governor's assertion earlier, it is an equal opportunity um, epidemic. And so um, finding resources for, for small businesses to really identify um, policies and procedures to support their employees who are experiencing substance use issues um, is critically important. 
the, the National Safety Council back in 2017 issued a report for businesses because businesses in general identified about 71% of them had had um, opportunity to intervene with somebody with a substance use disorder. Mm. But when asked whether they thought that substance use disorders were a threat to safety or a real human resource problem, far fewer, about less than half identified that. So they've been working to um, really identify ways that businesses of every size can develop um, a, a more effective and um, helpful policy stance to this issue. Interesting. And also, I think it would be important to train uh, HR, HR reps, supervisors, managers, mm -hmm. in terms of some of the more subtle things to look for. Okay. With with uh, in, in terms of not just the blatant stuff that might you know people calling in sick those types of things but if there's discussions about family issues or legal issues um, arguments with spouses on the phone maybe when they're at work sure. some of the more subtle things that might be some of the other symptoms that might indicate something's going on I think it's important for people within or smaller organizations like that to be trained to know what to look out for so that they might be able to start a conversation or engage in a conversation with somebody who's experiencing that. Yeah, but you do bring up a good point. I was in-house counsel to Travelers Insurance before having run for elected office and I do know that the resources that they provided to us, it's a Fortune 100 company, so we had a plethora of resources and what I would recommend to small businesses is constant contact with your employees. Mm -hmm. We're still dealing with an issue that's incredibly stigmatized. And opioid use disorder, for instance, is considered a disease. Yet a lot of people think that it's a, a personal wrongdoing, right? It was a choice. And so constant contact on the part of the employer, uh, bringing in speakers from time to time, uh, just to let them know, first of all, if and when they decide to come forward, there's help for them. And this is something that we could truly discuss as a business and that um, anything that you say will be held confidential. The sooner that you get to people and um, their issues, the sooner that we could find resolution and have them come back 100% into the workplace. So that's what I recommend to small businesses, even though they don't have all the resources that the big businesses do. Yeah, yeah that's and, and reinforcing to them mm -hmm. that we're just trying to help you. We're not mm -hmm. trying to get you in trouble. Right. And I think having the employees having a relationship with whoever the EAP, if there's a specific point of contact within the EAP, that they be immersed in the workplace so that there's a relationship there. Because if there's not that relationship there, it's too easy for people to kind of hide behind or worry about the stigma and those types of things. There has to be a lot of active relationship and collaboration. Absolutely. Well, the recognition that an employer really values you as an employee um, really leads to the fact that um, many people, if they are approached by their employer about a, a potential issue are more likely to avail themselves to treatment and I think that's really very empowering for employers too because I think that we we don't want to interfere or we don't want to be busybodies but at the same time ignoring um, the warning signs as you indicated is really something that we need to address as well. Well, I think you guys bring up such great points. Policies and procedures, you know, make sure those are up to date. And if you don't know, maybe you could reach out to mm -hmm. to you um, and, and gain some insight as, you know, what are those red flags? Mm -hmm. um, and the second is HR. Is your HR, 
you know, properly trained. Mm -hmm. um, and to your point, making sure your employee is really engaged and, and, right. and connected with employees because, um, to your point, you know, it's an equal opportunity, you know, uh, uh, crisis right now. Um, so I, I, I thank you for that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the medical industry and culpability. I re read a really interesting article this morning, and an orthopedic surgeon stated that, um, you know, there are some things that they're looking at that they recognize um, as areas of change, and one of them is to reduce the amount of, of um, prescription, uh, the length of time, you know, giving 30 or 60 or 90 days maybe going down to a week. Do you see that as being something that would be a, a step in the right direction or are there other things that maybe you think could be yeah, done? Yeah, because I think the biggest sing single issue with this is just the simple amount of these medicines or medications that are out there. Somebody may get prescribed 60, 80, 100 Norco Oxycontin for something that realistically they may only need um, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of those medication. Mm -hmm. And it's not typically going to be those people that were prescribed that medication. It gets diverted then. It gets diverted somehow. Uh, family, friends, black market where it gets diverted to other people. That's the biggest, there's a, that misconception that we had talked about where people that are being prescribed these medications, they're the ones that are being becoming addicted, which can't happen. But by and large, it's about 75% of the time these medications are then being diverted somehow to people that don't have the prescription, and they're the ones oftentimes that are developing this more severe problem. So that's why I love drug take-back programs, right. limiting the, the number of prescriptions that can be, you know, not being able to, to double it up and being able to, to limit that. Uh, that's, the, in my mind, the single biggest issue is just the number of pills that are out there mm -hmm. uh, right. with right. that diversion possible. So we're going to continue this because this is a really important topic, but we're going to take a quick break, so hold on to your thoughts. We'll be right back. So as we talk about the the medical industry's culpability and maybe you know things that they're doing, you know, there's also impacts with families and and how this all begins. And I'm sure, Lieutenant Governor, you hear stories um, from from people on this 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 trajectory that they never anticipated. Right. Well, um, when I was in Dixon, Illinois, having a field hearing there, um, there was actually a woman um, that said when. When one person has the disease, the opioid use disorder disease, it's the whole family. Mm. It's a disease for the whole family because the whole family has to go through it. And so, and, and the whole family feels like they can't come forward because the issue is still very much stigmatized. Uh, but going back to your point as to how uh, people get started, a lot of people think that it's uh, over prescription. And yes, that is true, but uh, there are different avenues to get addicted. For example, uh, during my travels I also heard testimony from individuals like a mom that loved to take her child uh, to soccer practice, her girl to ballet, uh, had minor surgery and was given too many opioids and then uh, became addicted. And she essentially lost her family for a short period because she then went on to heroin. And she discussed that she even changed her friends, um, that they uh, called called uh, the opioids mom's little helper. And um, it, it makes its way into homes in a different way. Or that child from Lake County, a young adult, um, said he, he became addicted because his friend invited him over, mother had cancer, and they started taking mom's mm. cancer medication. And before they knew it, they ran out and they started getting sick. And that progressed to heroin. So every avenue is a different avenue. Mm -hmm. And we need to look at it that way rather than um, just say prescribers. Uh, 
it's a big picture, and we need to right. look at it that way. Well, I think, Matt, you mentioned something about um, over not over-prescribing, but kind of the proliferation of opioids in, in yeah, the Yeah, it just States. ties into the medical industry piece, the idea that we have, we have in our country, we have 5% of the world's population, but we have 80% of the opioid prescription oil and pills, and, and that just goes to speak of just the factual over, there's no way that we have 80% of the world's pain right. in our country with 5% of the, so it just goes to speak of how big of an issue that is, the, the right. amount of the medication that's out there and how it really it doesn't, doesn't match with what the likely pain is that we're dealing with as, as a country. Right. Yeah. And I think there have been really strong efforts in realizing that um, with the best of intentions, with uh, pain becoming the fifth vital sign, um, to really try to objectify pain and realize that, yeah, people who are experiencing pain don't heal as well. And people who are experiencing pain sometimes have a hard time expressing their um, their symptoms out of the out of the best intentions, um, some of the um, some of the responsibility does lie with the with the medical um, industry. However, we've seen doctors over and over and over change their practices mm -hmm. um, and not prescribe as much. And I think on the patient side, we have equal kind of um, responsibility to not expect to have a broken limb and be pain-free. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with that expectation of health and how much we want to be an active part of that. Mm -hmm. In DuPage County, we've collected since 2009 46 tons, and it might be 48 tons now, of unused uh, medication wow. out of our community. And, and when you think of just the weight of a prescription it, it, it is not it is hardly anything right. and to have accumulated that much um, yeah speaks to not only pain medication but just pharmaceuticals in general right right um, there was an interesting statistic in 2017 they said that 25 percent of people that applied for a job failed the drug tests so it makes me think I'm thinking of two things here how the opioid um, crisis affects businesses mm -hmm. and the second you brought up families because not only is the user an employee but their family is employed and has to caretake for for this individual so I'm just curious from your perspective like what that means to um, to a business right you can't find employees um, and the second is how does it affect families right and those that are caretaking yeah. Yeah, we're seeing a lot more children, not, and it's hard to quantify, but we're seeing the numbers of children coming into our foster care system as a result of opioid dependency in their parents increase. We're seeing the numbers of babies who are born in opioid withdrawal going up. And so I think that all of those, all of those elements, I think workplaces are like schools. They're kind of the microcosm of our society for adults. Um, all of those elements converge into a workplace and just add another layer of complexity um, to getting the job done, whatever that job is. Well, and there's also all kinds of legal ramifications 
complications to this, oh, meaning right. what if they fail the drug test that per, but they're prescribed an, an opioid pain medication? What if, if they fail a drug test for marijuana but they live in Colorado where it's legal? So there's all kinds of mm -hmm. messy legal elements that, mm -hmm. that are going on as well that are leading to all kinds of lawsuits and all kinds of issues that really kind of muddy the waters with this. Right. right, and we also know that statistically those who fail those workplace drug tests, it's because of marijuana. It's because of cannabis more so than opioids right. and other drugs for that matter, which brings out another issue altogether. Right, right. Can we talk, I have so many questions, but can we talk a little bit about the functional um, opioid user that goes to work and, and maybe there's there's an impact from a productivity standpoint or from um, you know a distraction standpoint is that real or is that just perceived now that's real I think Karen had mentioned 75 percent I've read up to 90 percent not, not only with opioids but but alcohol in general there is a huge misconception that if somebody is in that severe substance use disorder realm that they're going to be on the street they're going to be homeless mm -hmm. most of the time wow. they're hiding it pretty well you know, and because of that still existing stigma, stigma right. mm -hmm. unless they have that close relationship, they're not going to reach out because they don't want people to know they want to put up that front mm -hmm. uh, because they don't want people to be aware of it. Right. Well, the term is, um, and I hear it a lot, it's called functioning addict, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but my, my response to that is that at some, to at some point it will take a toll mm -hmm. at some point. Mm -hmm. Plus in the workplace, it's, it's impossible to be as crisp. Mm -hmm. And so uh, most definitely, I, there's no way to be a functioning addict for the rest of your life. Right. If you're living with this addiction, you must seek help immediately. Right. Especially with opioids, because mm -hmm. there does tend to be a much steeper slide. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the level of addi how addictive it is mm -hmm. um, versus other drugs. It, they're, typically over time, if there is a severe opioid issue, there's going to be signs that emerge. Um, through the family, through legal, through those other financial, all of those elements, usually there is something that does start start to emerge. Can I, I just I, I'm looking at you mm -hmm. to say this? Can we talk a little bit about the cost of treatment? Like, and, and I mean that the term cost in in many different ways. Sure, but. sure, and and that's exactly where I was going to go. Is that um, we talk about sometimes the stigma a, a person feels, but. It's, all, it's also a matter of that supervisor who may not have the training um, to realize that this would be a help mm -hmm. to talk to this individual about getting into treatment and it would be an opportunity to demonstrate the value that that employee brings to the business. Businesses on average will gain about $3,000 her employee who in, is involved in recovery and treatment. And so when you look at the costs of addiction or substance use disorders in um, business, that can range anywhere from you know $2,000 a year up to $13,000 a year. So it is, it is a smart investment. Um, and uh, and um, it also represents an investment um, similar to other chronic health conditions like diabetes, like asthma. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we, we get real skeptical about does treatment work because maybe people need to go through two times with treatment or maybe they need to go into a, a longer, more extensive outpatient treatment after a residential treatment. And, and in fact, the relapse rates for substance use disorders are very similar to other very common um, chronic health conditions like diabetes, like hypertension 
hypertension like mm -hmm. asthma. Mm -hmm. And we certainly don't limit people with asthma's access to treatment, mm -hmm. life-saving treatment. Um, uh, through for their for their medical needs and, and in a similar way we need to really realize that treatment does work treatment can work um, and treatment with support represents a great deal of hope for individuals who are struggling right well cost of treatment is definitely not cheap but this is uh, where I see the light at the end mm -hmm. of this tunnel, is that we've been working closely with the federal government because I know the federal government acknowledges that we must put this first place. And because of that, we've been able to ascertain significant monies from the federal government. We started off by getting initially $40 million, and we've been able to get a lot more, uh, only because when we think about recovery, recovery is a forever thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people may feel fully recovered, but then they may have a relapse. And so we need to uh, take this for what it is and know that we have to deal uh, with, with this issue on a forever sort of timeline. But with that, um, I'm glad that we're working with our federal government and we've been able to get money for treatment because recovery is forever. Right. Because most of, the, most of the clients, the reality is, is most of the clients that are dealing with a severe opioid use disorder have no funding. I think there's a misconception that all, a lot of these people have good commercial insurance or even state Medicaid. Most of them that are at this point don't have any funding. So that's the time after time, that's the, the biggest issue that I see come up mm -hmm. with this issue is that there's, they don't, just don't have the financial resources to be able to pay for treatment or get it covered through their insurance. So I think I'm, great, I'm glad, really glad to hear that there's right. those initiatives and progress being made in that direction because I think until that happens, until, there's, until we're looking at the funding source, it's going to be impossible to really wrap around this. Even the 1115 waiver now that we recently mm -hmm. unveiled, now we take a look at the whole human through pilot projects because a lot of people that have an opioid use disorder have an accompanying behavioral or mental health issue. Absolutely. Before we were dealing with this in silos, now we're dealing with the human in his or her entirety, and it's made a big difference. Yeah, yeah. so um, we have a little bit of time left, and, and you alluded to it a little bit, Lieutenant Governor Ryan, you said hope. And what I'd like to close with is, what do we see? Do we see, you know, we could say pharma needs to do some work, but, but what we're able to do here, do you see some hope? Do you see some change? Do you see some, some possibilities? Um, hope for those that are addicted, hope for their families, and hope for businesses to be better educated so that they can deal with this in a really constructive, compassionate way. I do. I'll bring your attention to my son, Mike. He's 16 years old. And when we started doing our initial research, um, I had asked him, uh, Mike, do you guys talk about this in school? What do you know about opioids? What do you know about heroin? And he told me, well, Mom, I know from social media, because we don't talk about it at school, I know from social media that it's, it's highway to death very fast. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking to him about two months ago, and he told me that he was about to go to the gym because they were getting training on what it is to be addicted to opioids, uh, heroin, this whole issue. And I said, wow, that's magnificent, Mike. 
why didn't they get me to speak at this <laughs> event? You know, I co-chair the governor's task force. And he said, well, Mom, you're just not cool. We like to hear yeah. it from the athletes. But that, to me, spells hope, that our young people are learning about it, to stay away from it. Uh, slowly, I see more people coming to our roundtables, and uh, the stigma is slowly beginning to melt, and that gives me hope. Right. Yeah. Just the amount of attention that's being paid to it, I think, goes a long way. Uh, all the drug take-back programs that I've involved in are popping up all over the area. I think, I think doctors are starting to do a better job of limiting uh, the amount of medications that they're prescribing. Uh, treatment options, like I said, you know, we have opiate-specific treatment at Rosecrans. There's just, there is a growing, growing amount of hope going on, in, in my opinion. It's, this is such an important conversation to have, and I cannot thank you all enough for sharing your time and your expertise and your initiatives. Thank you so much. You give me hope. Thank you for joining us for Inside the Chamber. We hope that you found the information in today's program valuable. Please join us again for our monthly program. In the meantime, remember, when you're looking to shop or dine, think Chamber and visit Naperville.net to support the Chamber of Commerce and our business community. Inside the Chamber is brought to you by presenting sponsor, Naperville Bank and Trust.